Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, my name is Steve O'Shaughnessy. I live in Invermere, BC, and I just wanted to start by saying I love to chat with your mom. Um, I do a podcast as well called My Back 40, which is kind of more like um, biking, endurance athletics, training, nutrition um, podcast. Um, but I do get uh, delve in and lean into mental health, the mental health benefits of uh, physical activity. But um, I'm speaking to you today from. Uh, my upstairs new bedroom, which is my living room futon, as uh, yesterday, uh, raw sewage entered our basement uh, from the town into our basement. I was standing in it, fucking bare feet, um, weeping that I couldn't give my family a shelter uh, where they could just live and be cozy and uh, civilized to death, man. It's like you take you take for granted all the things we have and we bitch when we're so comfortable. But when something sideways goes like that, when you have other people's shit and toilet paper coming into your basement and you're scrambling around in it trying to save your beds and your clothes and your kids' stuffed animals, um, really puts things in perspective, man, and people have been super supportive, and, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a trip, it's a trip, man, and I know it's just a, a little drop in the bucket of life, um, and the issues that we have to deal with, but, yeah, I just woke up, and my family's sleeping somewhere else, they'll be here soon, but, uh, I just wanted to say that your podcast brought a smile to my face last night as I was trying to fall asleep, and uh, your mother sounds amazing. I also did a podcast with my mom, and uh, it was uh, it was awesome. I loved it. So I love everything you do, and uh, I always look forward to listening to your episodes when they come out. And uh, I love your brother. Take it easy. God damn, Steve O'Shaughnessy. That's awesome. That's fantastic and weird and horrible all at once. I hope the flood has subsided by now, <clears throat> and it's an honor for uh, my mom and uh, and I to be accompanying you in your um, shitstorm. So I'm sure mom would be very uh, happy to hear that as well. I'll make sure and let her know. Uh, hey, everybody. What's up out there? This episode is with the captain. Oh, what's his real name? He has another name. I, I looked it up on my phone a minute ago. Uh, he wrote a book called Fucking History, 111 Lessons You Should Have Learned in School. Uh, it just came out recently, and I'm looking at the Amazon thing. It's a number one bestseller in history humor. There is a category, apparently, known as history humor. Civilized to Death would not be uh, in that category, Although I tried to make the writing funny, the things I wrote about weren't particularly funny. Um, but fucking history is funny. The captain is a presence online. Um, honestly, I had not heard of the guy. 
Um, and I don't remember. I think his publicist contacted me to see if uh, I was interested to get him on the podcast. And I took a look at stuff, um, some of what he does, and I liked it a lot. Normally, when publicists reach out to me, it's an automatic no because it's some buddy with an online course you know it's just like a money thing and i i don't particularly like to bring those people into your world or into my world uh not to say that they're all bullshit or they're all uh, worthless but there's just so much schlock and self-promotion and uh, uh, just that's uh, not my thing um but the captain is a different story uh the captain is a cool guy and i really enjoyed talking to him and um he did this all himself i mean he just started writing these you'll you'll hear this he'll he tells the whole story of how it it started out but he just sort of started writing this stuff um and you know his friends were like dude that's funny you're good at this you should do that more and he, he did stuff online i guess he was working in an advertising company shitty you know good money but it eats your soul kind of job and so he was doing stuff on the side to to keep his shit real and next thing you know the stuff he was doing on the side became the center of his life and now he's got not hundreds of thousands uh of followers on instagram and twitter and uh and he's making a living from this he's ma- probably making a really good living at this point um and i think he self-published the first collection and uh, then he got a book deal and he went back and sort of redid it and touched it up and added some more material and now he's got a fucking bestseller in the history humor section um, but it's probably a bestseller in other sections as well because, again, I'm doing research here. Uh, I'm looking at the Amazon page. It's got 253 reviews already. Five star. So uh, this is not a book for kids necessarily unless your kids, um, you know, are not uh, the type that get freaked out by naughty language which let's face it very few kids actually get freaked out by naughty language it's adults who think kids are going to get freaked out by naughty language that's one thing i've never understood is being around my friends who have kids and occasionally i'll let out a you know fucking or goddamn or whatever a little salty language and it's like, oh my God, oh, he's, oh, the, oh, he's, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to say that in front of the children. Oh, the children. Oh. And like, I don't understand. Kids hear that language. Kids know people say those words. And kids are capable of understanding that there's some things that adults do that they shouldn't do, right? Seven-year-olds don't get behind the wheel of the car and drive down to the fucking liquor store right seven-year-olds don't drink booze they don't light up cigarettes in general um you know they're not doing adult things so they're certainly capable of understanding that there are things that are appropriate for adults and things that are 
appropriate for kids and these things change right you move through life and when you're 18 you can say fuck right I, or you can say fuck whenever the fuck you want just don't say it at school because you get in trouble in school at home i don't give a fuck i don't understand that there are a lot of things i don't understand and i know you parents who are listening to this are thinking chris you don't understand it's you're right i i defer to your experience but i do think it's weird i also think it's weird when someone says oh you know he won't eat if i don't you know make him his mac and cheese he won't eat vegetables and he won't eat this and he won't eat that fuck that kid the kid's an animal kid's hungry here's food eat it or don't i don't give a shit and if you don't eat it well tomorrow you will eat it when i reheat it for you because you'll be hungry i don't get it or oh he won't sleep like he won't sleep he's an animal animals sleep they get tired they sleep i don't understand why human children are somehow exempt from all the rules of the animal kingdom every mammal in the fucking on the planet eats when it's hungry and gets less and less particular about what it's eating the hungrier it gets and every mammal as far as i know sleeps when it gets tired except human children particularly suburban human children for some reason i don't know honestly it's all a mystery to me um so this episode is with the fucking captain i am coming to you from moab utah there are crows going nuts somewhere around me i can hear them you can probably hear them I don't know what they're saying, but they're very insistent about it. Um, yeah, so Moab, Utah, did a fantastic hike yesterday. If you get to Moab, I highly recommend it. It's called Professor and Mary Jane or something like that. It's a weird name. Uh, Professor Creek, I think it is. Uh, anyway, it's about um, seven or eight miles in and back, uh, and you hike in along a stream, and you splash across the stream many, many times. Uh, the trail sort of winds along uh, the banks of this stream, and uh, it's awesome. It's a really beautiful canyon that you go back and there are side canyons you can explore and at the end of it there's a waterfall and you can stand under the waterfall and it's one of those awesome experiences water in the desert is a really interesting beautiful thing so uh and it's clean and it's fresh and man after you hike back there and it's cool too because you you know it's hot obviously it's the desert uh but the canyon gives you a lot of shade and sloshing across the stream cools you down so it's it's pretty wonderful so if you're in moab i recommend it uh and if it's if you're in moab in the summer i recommend you get up at dawn and do it that's uh i mean even now in mid-september it's hot in midday it's 90 or so 
and the sun is brutal. So, all right. Uh, what else was I going to say to you? The politics, the country's going nuts. America is, is melting down, literally and figuratively. The fucking country is burning. Um, yeah, the metaphors and the reality are converging. It's incredible. Um, and I got to say, I... I'm going to do a Roma where I respond to people. Some people have, I put out a call for people who support Trump to tell me why. And I got a few interesting uh, messages from folks. So I'm going to do a whole Roma talking about that. Um, and um, yeah, my response to those responses and, and all that. But I will say, I mean, for those of you who don't know, or maybe you're listening to this for the first time because you're a fan of the captain and you don't know who the fuck I am, uh, I despise Trump. To me, Donald Trump represents everything that I really dislike about American culture. And I'm American, so I get to say this, all right? And I don't want to hear any of this love it or leave it shit. I did leave it. I spent most of my adult life outside of this country, but I was born here and I have a fucking passport and I can say whatever the fuck I want. Um, so Donald Trump represents the worst of American society. There are a lot of beautiful things about American society. Okay. I shouldn't have to say that we're incredibly creative in some ways. American society is quite generous. Um, but anyway, the braggadocio, the adolescent obsession with sexuality and fear of sexuality, the adolescent, and, and when I say adolescent, I mean adolescent male. Donald Trump is essentially a 14-year-old. He is insanely insecure, overcompensates, has a childish view of the world of what matters right what matters is having the hot fashion model wife doesn't matter whether she loves you doesn't matter whether she's a kind decent person doesn't matter how smart she is how deep she is how what kind of relationship you have what matters is what it looks like to other people Flashing your name in gold all over your fucking buildings, bragging about how rich you are. The guy's a douchebag. Now, that is not to say Joe Biden is great. It's not to say that the Democrats aren't utterly corrupt. It's not to say that the American political system isn't a sham, a, a, a theater of politics it's not to say that one man one vote hasn't been a joke from the day that fucking phrase was written down when black men didn't get votes and women aren't weren't considered people yeah i get all that but this guy i mean if the democrats are a shit sandwich trump and the republicans at this point are a shit sandwich with broken glass, barbed wire, and radioactive polonium powder dumped all through it. 
nobody likes a shit sandwich, but there are shit sandwiches and then there are shit sandwiches. And what we're looking at in this election is something that isn't just your run-of-the-mill corruption, something that is... In other words, there are a lot of things worse than America the way it's been. Now, I'm the first one to say this isn't sustainable. I'm the first one to say racism is cooked into the system. Classism is cooked into the system. Divide and conquer is cooked right into the American political system. You know, the decimate. Read my books. I, you know, I'm legit. I've, I've punched my card on that shit. But at least when you have a system that is that resembles in some ways representative democracy. Then there are avenues to address these inequalities. There are ways, although they are often um, illusions, there are ways to sometimes affect change through the system as bad as it is right andrew yang became very popular he got a lot of votes maybe he'll be in the biden cabinet maybe he, maybe he and bernie who i think are the actual representatives of of change positive change who got railroaded by the dnc of course again um because so many people voted for them, so because so many people support them, there is some chance for the Green New Deal, for example, for universal basic income to get a fair hearing and maybe to be implemented. Uh, universal uh, health care. That's on the table now, thanks to Bernie and the people who have supported him. But what Trump is doing is he's dismantling the system. He's taking it all apart. And those things... Those voices will not be heard. When the Supreme Court is packed, when the federal courts are packed with corrupt motherfuckers, which is what they're doing, then we're in big trouble, people. And I don't know how many of you have ever been near a dictatorship. I don't know how many of you have walked down a street and seen 15-year-olds with submachine guns. But I have. And that's a far cry from where this country's been. And uh, we're at the doorstep of that kind of thing. But having said that, Trump does say things that I agree with sometimes. And, oh, that fucking annoys me. Like, for example, recently he got in, into all this trouble for saying that, uh, you know, you know uh, all those soldiers in you know, World War I um, dead at the French cemetery yeah they're a bunch of losers now look i don't agree with that they're not a bunch of losers but i will say but no one has ever explained to me what the fuck world war one was about what those millions of men died for i don't know what they died for does can, can anyone explain what the fuck that war was about it just seems to have been some bizarre lemming like jump off a cliff on mass let's all just go out and dig trenches and fields and shoot each other 
until we just kill off a few million men because nothing changed the geopolitics didn't change the fucking very little changed basically what happened was my understanding is that the austro-hungarian empire lost and the fucking french insisted on bleeding them dry with reparation repar, reparations at the treaty of versailles uh, and then by bleeding the german economy dry by stealing their industrial base in alsace lorraine uh they essentially pissed off the germans so much that it gave rise to hitler and world war ii so the only thing i so i don't I see how the negative consequences of World War One, in addition to the millions of men who died for no fucking reason, and then the millions of more men, women, and children who died in World War Two because 20, 30 years later, now war has become something where you kill civilians and not just other soldiers. Hamburg blasted, totally destroyed. Dresden totally destroyed. People burning alive in their homes that's an effect of world war one happening in world war two um anyway my point is yeah i wouldn't say oh all those men who died were losers but i would say they died for nothing i would say that there's something empty and meaningless in their deaths what was accomplished in the the vietnam war what good came out of that 50,000 American soldiers died. Hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese people died. Hundreds of thousands of lives destroyed. And I'm talking about, about people who didn't die. I'm talking about people who survived. All that suffering. For what? I don't know. I don't know anything that was accomplished. So when Trump says, oh, yeah, the military brass, they don't like me because all they want to do is keep fighting these wars so that they can, you know, funnel money to defense contractors, which he said a week or so ago. I agree. He's right. He's right for all the wrong reasons. He's a total fucking douchebag. But occasionally even shitheads say something that's true. I forget the name of the journalist uh, who said this about 15, 20 years ago or something. He said, uh, what was the word? A fo- it's not a faux pas, but it's like... A- Basically, he said the worst thing you can do in Washington is tell the truth by accident. And I think that's what happens sometimes. Trump actually tells the truth by accident. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. I remember, I'll probably use this metaphor again when I do the Roma, but people who have written to me and said, you know, here's why I support Trump. Basically, to summarize their arguments, it's like, hey, Trump, at least Trump is honest about being a liar. 
and the other ones are dishonest about being liars, which I think is true. I think that's a a pretty fair assessment that, you know, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, they're corrupt as fuck. Joe Biden was behind the crime bill that blew the roof off American prison population, put lots of young black men in prison uh, for minor drug offenses. And uh, the effects of that ripple out through society. Joe Biden is not my friend, for sure. Joe Biden's also the fucking asshole who sponsored the bill that made it impossible to get out of student debt through bankruptcy. So if you borrow $100,000 to start a business and your business doesn't work out, you declare bankruptcy and go on with your life. Your credit will be back in seven years, I think it is. But if you borrow $100,000 to become a dentist and then you decide you don't want to be a dentist or you can't get a job as a dentist or you're just not good at being a dentist or whatever, sorry, that debt stays with you to the grave. You cannot discharge that debt through bankruptcy. You can do it with debt for a house. You can do it with debt for a business, as I said. You can do it with any other kind of debt. And companies do it all the time, but not an 18-year-old who's trying to get an education. No, that debt will stay with you forever, even though that debt is guaranteed by the federal government, meaning that the bank that lent you the money, when you default on the debt, they get their money back from the government, but they still, even though they got their money back, they still will pursue you to the grave, including diverting your social security checks when you're old and retired and taking their money out of that thanks joe compassionate joe biden all right uh i guess i've said enough i'm in a mood this is my conversation with the captain i hope you enjoy it and i hope you will go uh, pick up a copy of fucking history because we all need to know our fucking history. We're living it right now. You are living fucking history. You are experiencing it day by day, hour by hour. These are crazy times we live in, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm very grateful to have you along for the ride. All right, I'm going to play you out with an appropriate little ditty here i don't know if i ever told you guys about when i was a history teacher in spain for most of one academic school year that was a bizarre time in my life but uh (laughs) it was i'll definitely tell that story one of these days that's a toma in and of itself uh anyway i was mr ryan there for a while And um, when I quit, I put together a mixtape CD and I gave it to the students. And this song, I think, was the first song on the CD. Uh, It's called Contract on the World Love Jam. And it's by Public Enemy. Hope you dig it. Talk to you soon. 
Kyle, also known as the Captain. I'll probably be uh, switching back and forth between calling you Captain and Kyle. Can I just call you Captain Kyle? How about that? We'll just uh, put it all together. That works for me if it's easier. I mean, I prefer to call you called me Kyle. It's going to be hard to have a conversation with the persona for an hour and a half. Yeah. So tell me about your persona. Who is the Captain? What's the deal? <laughs> well, the Captain, uh, it started as a joke in my 20s with my friends. I was a uh, I was, you know, pretty wild. I went out often with the intention of getting kicked out of bars to see how many I could get tossed out of in a night. I mean, I was young in my 20s, and uh, my friends just started referring to going out with me as similar to getting on a boat and waiting for it to sink. Uh, they would say, you know, going out with Kyle is like, you know, you just wait for him to hit an iceberg. He's the captain. You're kind of along for the ride. So it started as a joke between my friends, um, and then it's something I started using um, later in my life as kind of a, a protective, and I guess you could say wall between my social media writing and my professional career in uh, the advertising world, because I didn't really want uh, my clients to find out about my, my personal life too much. And so social media was kind of my outlet to share stuff I wanted to keep away from my career. And I just, I just used the captain. I already had the handle, uh, SGRSDK from, a. Uh, a little endeavor I had in college selling uh, anti, you know, kind of anti-agro t-shirts. I had a brand called Sugar Steak. And so I owned the handle SGRSDK where I sold those under. And so I already had that. I switched it over to the captain as far as the name. And that's where I started putting a lot of my writing that um, either wasn't used by clients and scripts I was working on, or it was just writing that was more associated with my personal life. So how, how old were you when you got into advertising? I was probably 27 when I got my first advertising gig. I had just returned from a stint as a tour manager on the Mayhem Festival um, with a bunch of heavy metal bands. And I'd always wanted to be a writer. I had a hard time getting hired, um, primarily because of my look. And I was living in Utah at the time. I grew up in Salt Lake City. And I'd interviewed with every single advertising firm in the in the state essentially and i've been told numerous times i couldn't be hired because i didn't look presentable um clients wouldn't like to see me in the meeting room because my fingers were tattooed or i didn't have the look of a, a buttoned up corporate guy and then i had one good meeting with a creative director and i told him you know you're my last chance to to try and be an advertising writer if you don't hire me i'm gonna say fuck this industry and never try again 
he hired me because I was so brutally honest with that. And I'd never really planned to get into advertising. It was just a way to get paid as a writer. Um, I think a lot of writers, especially in New York and larger cities, you fall into advertising because it's a way to make money. Um, you don't get paid well being a journalist for a lot of magazines these days. You don't get paid well being a blogger unless you have an enormous following. And so advertising was my way to, to be creative and also make some money so I could move out of my parents' house and get my own place. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. I think a lot of people in advertising, I don't know, it's like, it's like when I hear those songs, you know, like a jingle, you know? Yeah. Like, Buy a used car from yeah. da, da, da. I think the people singing that never intended to be singing jingles for fucking used cars. They thought no, they were they... going to, you know, be the next Beyonce, you know? Yeah, I mean, I actually had a used car client as one of my my primary scripts. I wrote, I wrote a ton of TV commercials for a, um, a car dealership and hmm. never in my life would I think of selling cars. So the captain and my social media was an outlet outside of that. Um I always tried to push myself with my scripts, even when selling very boring things. And kind of the catalyst for it is I, I was working for a furniture company and I'd written a script associating finding a coffee table, a lot like dating. Um, you don't want something that's too, too tall or too short. Um, you don't want something that's too wobbly. In the end, you just want something stable. Um, that's kind of what we're all looking for. And I, I had this joke in the script that I thought was really on point and relevant in the client didn't want to touch it because they thought it might get some flack. And I was like, no way, that's that's too good of a concept. And so I started tweeting stuff like that on my Twitter account. Like I'd be working on a script and I'd be like, oh, this content's this is A content. I'm going to keep this for myself and put it on my Twitter and I'll give my client my B and C content because they're probably not going to appreciate the, the cleverness of what I wrote anyway. So mm. it started that way and then it kind of snowballed. I've always been very opinionated. So I kind of just got a little a little more confident with my opinions and started expressing them more and more and more. And then it got to a point where, um, I mean, I, I could no longer hide that I had this persona. I was starting to get clients actively seeking me out because of my social media presence. And they understood yeah. that I, they understood that I, I, uh, I knew, um, a bitter, uh, you know, a couple of things about writing. And at, at, at that point I kind of stopped trying to hide it, but I didn't put my real name on my profile till last summer. Um, I still was very um, kind of anti putting my real name on there because I wanted to keep this little barrier up with with my audience. And I finally decided to open up about, you know, five or six years of severe depression I had been dealing with. And in in doing that, I took a, a 30 month, I mean, a 30 day hiatus from social media. And I came back and put my real name on my profile. And I was very open about the mental health issues I had I had struggled with. Um, just in my corporate life, feeling like I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, wasn't pursuing what I really felt I wanted to pursue. And, you know, and taking that veil off and openly admitting, no, I'm Kyle Creek, I'm also known as the captain. Um, it made social media just a lot easier for me. And it actually probably was one of the smartest things I've done. Um, I still find myself quite disenchanted with social media often, especially this year. Um, there's times I'd like to leave it behind altogether. But as a writer, I think every writer wants a voice and social media gave me that voice. So I, I can't deny the fact that I've kind of accomplished what a lot of writers hope to do. I mean, the fact that I can tweet something and hit as many people as I can is is there's there's power in that. And I've just tried to try and use it the last year. I've tried to use it a lot more. Um, 
intelligently and just having like a bigger picture with what I'm working on. Yeah. Uh, I, getting back to what you said earlier about going to bars and getting kicked out, what, what was going on there? Were you just, were you like an angry young guy I was, for fights or what were you I trying was, to do? I wasn't looking for fights. I was always very, I'm a very happy person when I, when I'm drunk, I don't, I don't get angry. I'm, I'm if anything, I'm angrier when I'm sober because I get annoyed by little, every little thing. <laughs> yeah, um, that's me, man. I'm in, I'm a happy drunk and angry sober person. Yeah. I was just, uh, I just had this, some, some anxiety in me and I, I felt very bored and stifled by life and I'd been living in Salt Lake for so long I felt fairly trapped and I was trying to to make a name for myself as a writer so I could have a little bit of freedom and travel and be able to work wherever I wanted to and I just returned from touring and I'd seen the whole country and I lived on tour buses and coming back to town I just I just felt it felt off it felt like a just a big regression in my life and so I just had like this pent-up desire to uh just be wild. And I think a lot of it, as I've gotten older, I realized was it was a mask. I mean, it was a way to kind of prevent people from getting too close to me. And a lot of people, even my best friends would be afraid to ask me about personal issues in my life because I had this grandiose wild persona and they, they just figured, Oh, Kyle has it all, all put together. And, um, it wasn't until this past year when I really started talking about my, my depression and stuff like that, that I realized that is what I'd been doing all through my twenties was mm. just kind of hiding, um, just being, being vulnerable. If I was having a bad day or something that was bothering me, it's like, oh, I'm just going to go get rowdy and get in trouble. And at least that's something that'll distract me from having to talk to anybody about this. There's a lot of suppression and I grew up Mormon. I grew up in the LDS church until my early teenage years, I fell away. My whole family stayed in it. My brother's not, you know, got out in their late twenties. So I think my religious upbringing as well, and I've talked to friends about this sense is we were, we were raised with a lot of suppression and we didn't talk about things that bothered us. You didn't talk about things that could be seen as, um, you know, not aligning with the views of the church you were brought up in. And so I, I learned how to really, um, keep things hidden anyone who read back on my writing during the time you could pick up hints of what was probably bothering me or um i just i never talked about it so really i think me being rowdy and me being over the top and grandiose it's fun i mean it's fun i'll admit that it was fun but at the same time there was there was a level of me protecting myself sure it's interesting there i'm already picking up this thread with you of uh you know, the, the sort of dance between the real you and the personas that you've oh. created, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that, that's probably something I've struggled with quite, quite intently. Um, particularly last year, since I've, since I, I came out about my depression, it was something I struggled with and it, it interfered with my personal life. Um, even like relationships and, you know, with my girlfriend and trying to understand when to be, Kyle and when to be this character that I think people became accustomed to. Right. Um, 90% of the stuff I write is me. Um, there's a guise on it, obviously, when I yeah. come across harsh on purpose. Um, but it's, it's things that I, I don't see myself holding on to too much longer. I mean, with this new book coming out, um, I do plan to kind of make a shift in my work to something that is, is, is just interesting to me again and new things are interesting to me progressions interesting to me and i kind of feel like i'm at a point in my life where 
I, I, I want to move to this next level of, of writing yeah. and creativity. Yeah, it's it's interesting how, you know, you had the the real you being masked by this, the captain, you know, in the bars, the the wild dude and all that. And then you get into advertising where you're presenting a false you at work <laughs> and the real you oh then assumes the yeah. captain, yeah. right? <laughs> the, the captain moniker and the real you is being voiced through this persona, huh? you know, it, it's like really interesting. You yeah. flipped it around. And now when you were talking and you talk about this book, which is coming out with, who is it? Random House or somebody? Yeah. It's a big publisher, right? Yeah. And uh, it, it, I had this image listening to you. I got this image of a rocket ship and how it like loses its booster engine. You know what I mean? When <laughs> yeah, it right? reaches escape velocity, it's like you've finally you've reached escape velocity, man. Yeah, I, I feel that way at times. At times, I wake up with just extreme gratitude to be like, "Holy shit!" I mean, this social media was never meant to be something that I monetized. It was never something I planned to make money on. It was strictly me putting work out that I thought was clever, that I thought would resonate with people. And it's just, now it's become almost this beast that I had to learn to, to wrangle in at times. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to feed it regularly. Yeah. You, gotta, you, get, you definitely have to still feed it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the book and, and uh, what's it called? The fucking history or something well, it's called fucking history <laughs> <laughs> it's funny I, I had mark manson on this podcast uh when he was publishing uh the subtle art of not giving a fuck it yeah. seems to and i've had the the people from uh thug uh kitchen on and they're they have all these like fuck like you, you cookbooks yeah yeah eat like you give a fuck those yeah. guys yeah so there's definitely a theme happening here yeah. Uh, and by the way, I, I want to say before I turn on the mics, you mentioned this was your first podcast. This is uh, my first podcast. I've been very super an- honored, dude. I've, yeah, I've been uh, I've been asked to be on podcasts for probably four or five years and I just continually say no. And it's one of those things that I don't even know why I've been so anti podcast for so long at this point. It just became a habit for me to decline them that I had to actually step back and be like, why am I declining these? I mean, why? Why? Why am I so anti this um, this new media, essentially? And I think a lot of it was because I, I just thought everyone in their roommate was starting a podcast. And everyone was telling me, oh, you should have, you should have a podcast. And so I felt the need to kind of just rebel against it. But You got to draw a line. I, yeah. For me, it's Facebook. I don't do Facebook. Yeah, I, I have a Facebook that just kind of works as an auto-repository for my content. Yeah, but I, don't have, I haven't had a personal Facebook since 2006. Yeah. I believe um, I haven't had personal social media that's, you know, attaching to friends and family since, you know, the early 2000s. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, this is my first podcast. I'm honored to be on. I uh, I was listening to some of your stuff this morning and I told my girlfriend, I was like, damn, like I could have been having conversations like this for the past five years and I fucking blew it because I didn't want to be in the <laughs> podcast world. Like some of these conversations are extremely interesting and yeah. They're fun to listen to, and I could have been having these combos instead of talking to all you know the, the the other you know crappy conversations I've wasted my time on over the past five years. I'll tell you, and it's not just the conversations, dude. I I was, you know, I'm sitting in this garage in Bend, Oregon. Okay, how did I get to this garage? Well, the guy who owns this house listens to my podcast, and three years ago. Uh, I wanted to go to Burning Man and he got in touch and was like, hey, man, I have some extra tickets to Burning Man if you come by Ben. So I came by Ben, met him and his wife, mm-hmm. became really good friends, we ended up going to Burning Man with him. 
three years later, they're some of my best friends in the world. You know, I'm if we were talking about this last night because some other friends came to visit who I also know independently through the podcast. It's like 90 percent of my my social world mm-hmm. are people who came to me through the podcast. Um, you know, listeners who reached out or people I had on that I became friends with because until the COVID thing, I never did these remote interviews like we're doing. I always, you know, I would drive across the country to sit in a room. I flew to Holland to sit in a fucking ice barrel with Wim Hof, you know, and they were like, no, we'll do it online. I was like, fuck that. No, man, I was in Spain. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't flying from California, but, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, in my life, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the podcast as a, not, it's enriched my life in so many different ways. As you say, just, it's it's also rare in the world because of social media and these accelerated rhythms that we've become accustomed to. It's rare to sit down with someone and turn off all the phones, just one-on-one, look in each other's eyes and have a conversation. That's mm-hmm. become a rarity, you know? Yeah, um, I like what you hit on there, the fact that this podcast has afforded you to, to connect with so many people. I, I've had a similar experience with my social media where... I used to travel a lot for work. I was home maybe five days a month. Other than that, I was on an airplane or in a hotel, and I'd always post the cities I was about to land in. I'd post an Instagram story mm. in the bar I was at that night, and I would right. meet these incredible people from all walks of life. And you know, same thing. People would offer me their room. They would offer me their, oh, you can borrow my car. Oh, I'll drive you across town. And right, I, I realized I was incredibly fortunate to have this life that I had, and so I started uh, this contest called Stranger Danger where I would have people submit essays to me, picking any city in America you wanted to go to, tell me why you wanted to go there, tell me what restaurant and bar you really wanted to go to, and tell me some kind of cultural thing, whether it's a venue, a museum, something you want to do in that city. Um, Because, you know, you're the same way. You've traveled extensively. There's people who haven't left their hometown their whole life, or there's people that go on a vacation once every five years. And I'd been to every state in the U.S. by the time I was 26 through touring and a couple odd jobs. And I was like, man, there's just so much culture to see in America. I'm going to take a random person on a trip for three to five days and I'll pay for fucking everything. And I did that. I would do several rounds of these every couple of months. I'd pick a random stranger. You couldn't submit Mm. a photo. You couldn't submit your Instagram handle. I wanted to know nothing about you other than what I asked for in the essay. And the first time we were going to meet is at the airport of the city you choose. Wow. And I'll go on these trips with random people for three to five days and just, you know, live stream it on my Instagram and post videos. And we'd, you know, we'd end up with like... uh, Maybe me and the one, you know, the one stranger. And by the end of the night, there'd be like 16 of us bar crawling around, just stumbling around like a bunch of drunk idiots in some nice. room, you know, in New Orleans or something. Um, and those experiences are experiences I, some of the best times of my life. Um, yeah. It allowed me to extend a hand to someone, give them a cool opportunity. And then at the same time, it almost forced some growth in myself because it's rather uncomfortable to meet someone and then be attached to the hip to them in a city for five days. Um so stuff like that's fun. Um, I could totally see your podcast creating that same culture. And I'd, I'd be damned to say that social media hasn't been good to me, even though I do at times get pretty, you know, disenchanted with it. A lot of it's my own, you know, just angst and me being a yeah. cranky, cranky individual. But um, social media has absolutely changed my life. And I'm internally grateful for what it's done for me. Yeah. Yeah. People ask me sometimes, like, you know, how did you prepare to, to have a podcast? And um 
you know, they're, I mean, I've always liked talking and I've always liked meeting people and hearing things. But I think one of the best things is I hitchhiked a lot when I was young. And man, you get into a car with someone, you you, you have no idea who they're going to be, right? Yeah. You know, the only thing you know about them is that they were willing to stop. Yeah. Hopefully because they're really cool and generous, maybe because they're really creepy and weird or just lonely or who knows. Um, but the conversation starts out with gratitude on my part, right? Because I'm standing there in the middle of fucking nowhere and there are mosquitoes and, you know, it's starting to rain or it's getting dark or whatever. And some you stopped and picked me up. I'm starting with this feeling of like, wow, thank you. And uh, yeah, it's man, I had so many adventures. I, I should do sometimes on this podcast. I just tell stories about when I traveled, you know. I should do one about hitchhiking. You should just hitchhike and then interview these people that pick you up while you're driving to your destination and make little mini episodes of that. Right, right. Do you know uh, that filmmaker, um, what's his name? He's he's gay, he has a little pencil mustache. Uh, he, he did like a Faster Pussycat Kill, Kill, Kill. Uh, I can't remember. John Waters. John Waters. You ever heard of him? Uh, I have not. He's a character. Anyone listening to this, check out John Waters. He's hilarious. And he's made he made all these like super campy movies in the 70s and 80s. Um intentionally campy, just like bizarre off off the wall movies. He's from Baltimore and he filmed them all in Baltimore. Anyway, recently he's very famous, very rich, you know, totally successful, probably in his 70s at this point. And uh, like a year ago or something, he hitchhiked across the country. Didn't tell anyone he was going to do awesome. it. And these people picked him and they're like, wait a minute, that was John Waters standing back there. And they picked him up in a van. And so it kind of was like what you were suggesting. Like he turned it, he ended up writing a book about it, I think. No, I think that'd be fun. And that's stuff that I, I would still be very open to doing in my own life. Um, you know, given when this, this current situation we're dealing with decides to tamper down a bit and we can actually really travel again. I thought of bringing back my Stranger Danger series in a, a different kind of iteration of it, but I think everyone's been cooped up for so long. People are going to want to travel more than ever, and I was going to try and find a way to do that, whether it's traveling with groups of people or doing the one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. But it was something that I really enjoyed doing, and some of the best conversations I've ever had were just with random people you meet in happenstance like that. Yeah, um, and I, yeah, I like definitely. That. I mean, I, I lived when I lived in New York City for a bit. One of my favorite things about New York is I could go to a, a bar and I'd be sitting next to a lawyer and a doctor and an electrician, someone who just came over from Ireland and their uncle owns this bar and now they're working in his bar. And the best conversations I've ever had were just like lunch hour conversations for 45 minutes with a stranger I'll never see again. Yeah. That's probably the thing I miss about living in New York City more than anything was just the people there. Yeah. And just the accessibility to everything that can open your eyes you don't get caught in one thought process in new york too easily unless you're actively trying to be stuck in your own bubble yeah that's true yeah, and you mentioned ireland that's one of the things i love about ireland is you can walk into a pub in ireland and everybody's just like all right who the hell are you what's your yeah. story you don't you're not don't, afraid you don't fit this vibe you're not a local let's find out who you are kind of yeah well and i just love the 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 like lack of fear of strangers some cultures, the you know, they openly welcome strangers. America is actually pretty welcoming of strangers as cultures go. But I think Ireland is is the most that I've experienced. They're just they just want to hear your story, you know, or you can sing a song or whatever the hell. 
they want to hear it. Yeah, I th- again, to go back to New York, I think that was one of the things I liked about New York. I think they get a bad rap of people talk about New York as being rude. It's just because during the day, people are fucking busy. Yeah. But if you go to a bar or restaurant in New York, you can strike up a conversation with anybody and they'll talk to you. Um, yeah. I haven't had that same experience as in L.A. Um, I think L.A. is very clicky um, in multiple ways. But like I just said, with the bar example, you go to a bar in New York, you get five different characters. You go to a bar in L.A. and it's typically one group of people. Like that's yeah. the bar for that style of person. You yeah, go to another bar, true. like this is the bar that you go to if you're a tourist. This is the bar you go to if you're trying to be seen. This is the bar you go to if you're a local, but you're a local that only lives in this neighborhood of Venice. Right. Like it's it's down to that kind of um, just lack of saturation in LA that I don't, you know, you, you get on the East Coast more so than you will anywhere on the West Coast, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I, I lived in Spain for 20 years, and that's one of the things I loved about it. You go to the, you know, first of all, the distinction between a bar and a cafe is is very hard because they all have alcohol licenses. Mm-hmm. So you can get a coffee, you can get a beer, you can get a glass of wine, you can get a cocktail, whatever. And there are people in there from every age, you know, from little kids in there with their parents to the old men playing dominoes in the corner, you know, hipsters. It's, it's just, I love that mix. Uh, it's so fertile and interesting. So you mentioned you were with uh, touring with a band. Were you a musician or a roadie or what was your, Oh, I, I was a tour manager. Um, uh-huh. I mean, early, early on as a teenager, I played the drums and I think I had this hope of being a musician, but like every other musician, I, I sucked and I wasn't good enough to actually be in a real band despite playing often. Um, I had a friend that had a tour manager quit like mid tour with them and they called me up and they knew that I had, you know, some business experience and that I, I liked the scene and I was, I was a fun guy to party with and they're like, oh, he's got the perfect mix. He can drink, he can work and he can do business. So... They offered me the gig and I, I quit the job I was at at the time where I was a, I think I was like an email marketing copywriter. I was writing strictly emails for a nutrition company, the most boring shit ever. And I quit and I went on tour the next week nice. um, and just, you know, rode around the bus with them as a tour manager. And it was one of the best summers of my life. I think it's like heavy metal summer camp is what we all kind of dubbed it because it was one of the last real years of the metal scene being being pretty large too. I think it was 2013. Since then, that style of music has really kind of, you know, taken a back seat. Those mm. festivals used to be enormous. And, you know, now a lot of those bands are lucky if they can play to crowds of, you know, three to 5,000. And it's before the virus. Who knows what's happening now? Yeah, I talk to my friends now and the, most of them are kind of stuck not touring until 2021. That's kind of like the consensus. Most people have closed tours down, especially for that kind of music. I mean, you can't have a mosh pit in your cars. I mean, at that point, it's just a, at that point, it's a demolition derby. I mean, you can't do the drive in for that kind of music. Half uh-huh. the fun of that kind of scene is the sweaty, dirtiness of the crowd. I mean, yeah, a lot of the time, as even as a tour manager, I would leave stage and go get in the crowd to watch sets of other bands that I had, you know, always liked seeing. And here I was on tour with them. And it's just something else um, to be down in that. Yeah, yeah. So, and what's the connection with all this? How do you get into history? What's oh, shit, uh, did man. you study I'm, history in college or what? I, I didn't. I actually went to college for business administration. <laughs> I went to college for a degree that would just hopefully get me in 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 a house somewhere with a, a potential to make money writing. Essentially, is what I wanted to do. And I figured, okay, if I get a business admin degree, I can understand the whole business hierarchy, and then maybe it'll help me get a job. Um, the whole history angle came from 
just my personal fascination reading stuff and being like, damn, that's why don't people talk about that more? Like you read about an individual that did something incredible. It's like, why is this person not talked about? And so really that's kind of how I chose my stories too, is I just picked stuff that was interesting to me. And it was the, in school, I never liked history. I couldn't even tell you any of my history teachers' names. I think it was one of those subjects I kind of just glazed over and I learned the information just enough to regurgitate it for a test, which sadly enough is how I think a lot of history is, is taught. And so I figured, okay, if I can teach history in a way that's, that's pretty ridiculous, I'm going to write these stories in a very obscure fashion that's kind of over the top because humor allows us to remember things. Everyone can remember a good joke. You tell your friend a good joke, if it kicks ass, he's going to be able to recite that. You tell your friend a fact in history, for the most part, they're going to lose it. They're going to remember maybe a little bit and piece of it. So I figure, okay, if I can inject humor and history, I can teach things in ways that people are going to resonate with. But then I wanted to take it a step further because the coolest thing about history to me is the fact that thousands of years later, as humans, we're still dealing with the same shit. Um, kings and queens that ruled empires still dealt with jealous behavior of a lover. Uh, you know, people still had a lot of barriers towards success. People still had to deal with the same kind of depression or the same kind of heartbreak that we deal with now. And I think a lot of people is having a conversation with my, my father not too long ago. We tend to think that humans now are more intelligent than humans were thousands of years ago. But you have to think, no, the humans thousands of years ago are who invented and created the shit that allows you to have the life you have now. So you have to understand that people back then were just as intelligent and they just had different means to either express things or experience things. And so I wanted to take history and just, just share it in a way that I thought people could relate to their life today. Like this queen dealt with this. Here's how she handled this situation. So if your boyfriend does this to you, here's how you can handle it. That kind of, that kind of take is what I did. And it's, it's, again, it started as a joke. I just wrote these lessons on Sundays because I thought it was a funny way to, to make fun of organized religion. And I just called them Sunday schools. And I started taking like old stories. It's essentially like same way a preacher would take an old story from the Bible and yeah. tell you how to relate it to your life today. I was like, okay, I'm going to take a story about a queen who beheaded a guy. And I'm going to tell you how to apply it to your life today. And I'm going to call it my own little sermon. And it's right. total joke, total joke. I released the first book in 2016 under the same title, Fucking History. I self-published it. Um, I did a follow-up book called Another Fucking History. Um, and they were self, I, I self-pubbed both of them. And I did really well and caught the attention of a couple agents and a couple publishers. And after years of back and forth, I finally decided, all right, I'll, I'll let go of these and I'll let a publisher re-release them. So this book is like a combination of my two previous you know, best-selling self-pod books. And then I wrote a bunch of new stories in addition to it. I went through and did a full rewrite to kind of update them. Looking at some of my jokes, I mean, 2016, I was like, wow, that joke's kind of sucky. Like, I can make that much better today. Or what was I thinking when I wrote that? It's not even funny. Um, so I, I did a bunch of updates and rewrites, and that's the book that's coming out this August. How do you deal, talking about, like, bringing things into up-to-date or, you know, into the the current scene how do you deal with pc culture and you know i saw you you had something about mark twain uh you know who now huck finn one of the most anti-racist books ever written is being banned because it has the word nigger in it it's yeah insane um how do you deal with stuff like that like historical documents that have language or or content that would be considered offensive now 
I still tell it the way I think it needs to be told in order to actually resonate with someone. Um, right. I had a tweet I wrote recently about what's happening. You know, in our current times, history is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. If you are experiencing, if you're a part of history, it fucking sucks for the most part. Um, yeah, but, if you're mentioned, it's yeah, probably not good. It fucking sucks. It's not easy. And we have a very easy time looking back and being like, oh, it's so cool. They rebelled and they burned that house down and killed 5,000 people. It's like, think about that for a second. You're celebrating these conquerors that did incredibly terrible things. But in order to, but that is what they did in order to advance society to where it is or what they needed to do. And we have no problem detaching ourselves from that um, and being like, okay, that's cool back then. But what's happening right now, hundreds of years from now, they're going to talk about it. And it's going to be celebrated because these uprisings and what's going on, they need to happen. They're bringing attention to stuff that needs to be said. And I think it's absolutely ridiculous to take something like Huckleberry Finn and try to change that text because Mark Twain is actually a favorite author of mine. My mother was an English major and she got me reading Mark Twain at a young age. I think actually the first real novel I read was Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. And she was always a big fan of him as a, as an individual, Samuel Clemens. She bought me all his journals, like the vagabond stories. And she bought me the letters his daughters wrote about him. I have a big stack of Mark Twain related materials from my mom. It's something we shared. Hmm. And I always told people what I liked about Mark Twain is he wrote books about subjects that he knew were going to be lifelong issues. He didn't write about something that he knew was going to be really popular for six months. He didn't try and capitalize or try and take advantage of current times. He's like, here is a, you know, a systemic issue. This is a problem with humans that's going to happen for hundreds of thousands of years. And so he wrote stories about that. And the uncomfortable nature of those stories, I think, is what actually creates change. Yeah. And we're seeing that right now. If it wasn't uncomfortable, people wouldn't be talking about it. If it was comfortable, it would just disappear and go into the rug. I so to answer your question, to come round about, um, you know, I, I have stuff quite often on my my social media page that gets blowback, or you know, just my harsh commentary. But essentially, that's what a writer is meant to do. You're meant to stir emotion, and you're meant to actually make people feel something. And if I'm even making you feel angry. I've made you feel something. You're going to remember what you read because it made you angry, or you're going to remember what you read because it resonated with you in a way that motivated you. And or, I think there's always two sides to every story where the stuff that's controversial, there's the side that it really motivates and gets behind it, and there's a side that is offended by it. But over time, I think they can overcome that and kind of see the intent behind the story or behind the wording or behind the lesson itself. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably a long answer to a short question. No, that's, that's, you're, you're right on the money. And, and I, I agree. I love Mark Twain. Um, and, and I think Mark Twain understood something that you mentioned earlier, which is that if you want to talk about something uncomfortable, it helps to make it funny uh -huh. to be, to be amusing. Cause you know, you're asking people to swallow some bitter intelligence there. And if you can mix in some sugar, it's going to go down easier. Absolutely. I mean, that's probably the one writer that if anyone could say that I emulated would be the biggest compliment of my life. But that's yeah. that's shooting for the stars that I don't think I don't think anyone can ever really get to that level. Um, yeah, I, I think ever... he was brilliant. I think he was brilliant. And I think everything about his life was was fascinating. 
He's a really bad investor, though. He invested. Yeah, he, he was lost yeah, I mean, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, he lost a lot of money. But just just the just the little quirks about him, the fact that he named his dogs like I know, you know, and don't know. He had three. He had three large. I think they were I massive. Didn't know that. I think That's they were hilarious. massive. See, these three large dogs named I know, you know, and don't know. Right. And just shit like that. What are like, their names? It's like shit like that. It's like you have to appreciate that guy. Yeah. Yeah. When he had when he had a bed, he would sleep facing the headboard. He'd sleep backwards in a bed because he said the headboard is more interesting to look at than the footboard. And it's, <laughs> it makes sense. It's like, you know what? That's true. Yeah. But just stuff like that makes me appreciate just this cantankerous old man that refused to smile for photos. You ever you ever read Edward Abbey? I have. Uh, similar. It's kind uh, of... the, the, the Desert Solitaires. Of, yeah, right? exactly. I actually had that. I had a speaking gig at ASU three years. No, two years ago. I spoke at ASU. And I told a bunch of my stories that I felt had, you know, college age significance. And one of the people afterwards gifted me that book oh, and, nice. thought, and thought I'd appreciate it. I never heard of it. And I went back to New York in my little apartment. I crushed through it in a day and a half. Fucking and brilliant, huh? Very similar. I like that. Very similar. I, yeah. see, I, I grew up in Utah. So I grew up in Moab. I spent a lot of time in Arches. I was down there every summer. And so I, I know exactly what he's personifying with that serene feeling of being in the middle of the desert when it's sweltering hot and the way it allows you to think for some reason. So that book, yeah, it was a gift and it was something that I actually passed on to my first creative director in advertising because he's got a very similar mentality as myself. And after I finished, I was like, oh, you got it. You got to read this book. This is you in a nutshell. Yeah, it's a great book. And, and you know, not dissimilar to your career path in a way. And he published that book with this tiny little publisher. I think they were based in New Jersey. And, like, the first printing was 500 copies or something. Uh, no advertising, no reviews, no nothing. You know, no uh, literary establishment attention. Just totally under the radar. But people just started telling their friends like you did like dude you got to read this book this is fucking great this is amazing there's nothing like this and you know now here we are i don't know how many millions of copies later right you know got bought up by a big publisher and uh you know he he became successful but let me read you this this line somebody sent me this quote from him recently you mentioned uh mark twain being an old curmudgeon or old grouch or whatever this is edward abbey he says i've been called a curmudgeon which my obsolescent dictionary defines as a surly, ill-mannered, bad-tempered fellow. Nowadays, curmudgeon is likely to refer to anyone who hates hypocrisy, can't, sham, dogmatic ideologies, and has the nerve to point out unpleasant facts and takes the trouble to impale these sins on the skewer of humor and roast them over the fires of fact, common sense, and native intelligence. In this nation of bleeding sheep and braying jackasses, it then becomes an honor to be labeled curmudgeon. Absolutely. It's, it sounds to me like a curmudgeon is the perfect author. They should just change the name to author. To, like it said, exactly. cur, like on a book you buy, it just say curmudgeon by, and then the name of the person that wrote it. That should be like a Good. special, a special yeah. level of book that if you write it, you have the opportunity to change the name from author to curmudgeon on the title yeah. itself. And on your business card. Absolutely. Dr. Christopher Ryan, curmudgeon. Yeah. What, what am I a doctor of being cranky? <laughs> yeah exactly uh, uh yeah yeah i love I that was, book i loved edward abbey um yeah. i actually i hadn't thought about that book in a while that's odd he said you know someone asked him i think it was abbey it might have might have even been mark twain i don't know but so, i think it was abbey who said 
when someone asked him why he wrote, he said, I write to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That sounds like something Edward would say. Yeah. Um, an- another author I like his outlook is Cormac McCarthy. Um, he has a very similar kind of style. And I remember it was probably 2015 or 16. There was a, a tweet going around that he had died. And you know how like that stuff takes off the hashtag RIP, whatever celebrity. And next thing you know, everyone thinks that person died. Um, that came out about Cormac McCarthy. And I think the next day his publisher released a statement saying, we've spoken with Cormac. He's not dead. And he still doesn't give a fuck what happens on Twitter. Like the guy has, <laughs> the guy has no social media. And that was like his official statement to his death. Threatening. And I, I remember thinking that is why he's the guy who wrote, wrote Blood Meridian. I mean, it's yeah. that kind of mentality to write a book like that. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of have to be a bit of a, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think similar to you, I, I was my father taught English literature and uh, I grew up around lots of books. And, you know, my dad actually worked in public relations and advertising, but he always wanted to be a writer, you know, a real writer. I, I think I, I, I swear to God, I think everyone. So when, when I was in advertising, not to cut you off, I, I, I came to the rank of a creative director fairly quickly. And so I was the one in charge of hiring other copywriters. And the first thing I would ask them is, what do you want to do with your writing career? Because nobody wants to work in advertising as their right. goal. What are you trying to do? And I said, you give me two years. I'll teach you everything there is to know about advertising. I'll help you you know, get your name out there. But don't stay in advertising forever. It'll, it'll drain your soul. And it'll, you won't put the work out in the world that really matters. Right. And you get addicted to the money. You know. Oh, it's yeah. I mean, you get addicted to the money. I got pretty good in saying no in my career. Um, there's I mean, I, I would never work for pharma. I refused to work on a majority of political campaigns when asked. And there was just certain, you know, certain businesses I wouldn't touch because I had the captain on the side that was become fairly successful, which allowed me to be more selective with my advertising career. And I was able to say no to the stuff that I, I blatantly thought was just bullshit and shouldn't be advertised. Um, the majority of my career was spent in um, hospitality. So I was actually rebranding bars and hotels for a living. So when I was traveling around all the time, essentially I would travel to a bar, I'd go do a taste testing, I'd get super drunk, and I'd tell them how they can improve their menu. I'd rename the bar, I'd help them redesign the bar. Wow, drunk. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the, the unfortunate part about that is it was it was rather celebrated in my career at the time because that's what I did. I was known for I was known as the bar and hotel guy. I showed up to meetings quite often, hungover if not still drunk, and it was like a joke. I had I had a G, I was working on a hotel in Nashville, right off Broadway. I was rebranding this hotel there, and I went out all night. I was out to probably like four a.m. at the honky tonks just getting loaded. And I think I slept an hour and a half. I went to a meeting the next morning, 830. Uh, that's the thing is I would never miss a meeting no matter what. I was always on time. I, I always met my deadlines. So people respect me for that reason. But I showed up and I was clearly still intoxicated. And the GM of the hotel just said, man, you look like shit. Do you need a Bloody Mary? And he just gave me another Bloody Mary to have this meeting. And that was unfortunately how a lot of my advertising career career rent. I say unfortunately because it kind of drove me into a state where I, I, I definitely was drinking too often. And for years, I mean, I was drunk almost every day, if not, you know, multiple times a day. I'd get that afternoon one, wear it off and start another one. And that, you know, overall kind of led to my that last year when I decided to take a step back and I went sober for 120 days and had to, you know, reevaluate where I was going with my life and career. But it was very celebrated um, in advertising. That's for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I remember one piece of advice my dad gave me about writing uh, was that you, he said, you want to write as if you're sitting at a bar talking to your friends. Hmm? Like you want, you want them to hear you. And, and even as a young guy, I, in, you know, in high school and college, my teachers always said, you know, that I had a voice. And, um, and I don't know if you felt this because it sounded like you wanted to write from a young age. You sort of knew that was where you wanted to go somehow. But did you feel like, okay, I'm good at this, but I don't really have anything to say yet? I didn't really accept that I was good at writing till college. Um, you know, my, my mom was very good at helping me in high school, you know, get by with the essays and stuff I had to write. And I was always getting A's on them and I was doing very well, but it was never something that I considered I could make money on until college. Like I said, I wanted to be a musician first and foremost. And then in high school, I started playing sports and I actually got a full ride football scholarship to a college and I was okay. I was like, all right, I'm going to go to the league. I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm six, six. I was like 275 pounds in high school. I was a big dude. And I thought, okay, I'm going to become a, an athlete. And so for a couple of years, that was my, my sole focus was athletics. And I ended up dislocating my knee three times and I chose painkillers over sports. And, you know, I, I partied a lot of my twenties away. Um, that's kind of what led to me being so wild too, is I, I, I'd been on the full spectrum of, um, pain, you know, painkiller abuse and mm. heavy drinking and all that stuff through a lot of my twenties, but I, I was still in school. I still went to college cause I wanted to get out of school and I wanted to get into the real world. And I had a writing class there that I took very seriously cause I liked the teacher. And I remember I sent my mom one of my essays that I'd written for the class and she wrote me back and she's like, Kyle, this is, this is incredible. This is the whole new you. Like, when did you start writing like this? Hmm. And I just said, I don't know. I just started caring about it. I grew up reading a lot. Um, yeah. My mom would she would give us two options growing up. She's like, you can either go do yard work, you can mow the lawn and make $5, or you can read this book and write me a book report for $5. And I always chose the reading option. And there were summers where I'd crank through 15, 20 books as a kid because I chose that for manual labor, whereas my brother's big, oh, you know, fuck reading. We're going to go mow the lawn. And so I always loved reading, but it wasn't until college when I was like, okay, this is, I'm going to take this writing thing seriously. I've always been fairly good at it. I grew up writing a lot of reports for my mom to grade. And yeah, early on, I, I definitely probably felt like I didn't have stuff to say. I think my first paid, semi-paid gig as a writer is I was writing um, local, a local music column for a paper where I'd go review like concerts. And that kind of writing, again, I, I don't think it's very creative. It's kind of like, okay, this is why this band's good. This is why this band's not good. And I, again, I think it was safe probably because if you feel like you don't have something to say, it's easier to report on something than to create something or actually be very opinionated. Right. And so it kind of just snowballed from there into to everything else. You ever see a movie called Almost Famous? <laughs> I actually heard you talk about it on your other podcast. This oh, morning. really? <laughs> um, it's a phenomenal movie. I, yeah. My girlfriend had never seen it. I think the first time she watched it was about a month ago. Where I was like, you have to watch this movie. This is so cool. It's about this kid goes and tours with, you know, what was the fake band name? Like Stillwater Revival or. You know, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But yeah, he was writing for yeah, Rolling what Stone. What a great movie. And I remember, I, I remember when I was first writing, I was like, oh, I'd love to write for Rolling Stone. I'd love to write for Vice. Like that used to be like my goal Vice, was to write yeah. for Vice. But 
I, I've lost a lot of respect for Vice the past yeah, few years. They but, spun out. I don't oh know what God. happened. Like, to as them. soon as Vice became BuzzFeed, I was like, fuck this. Yeah. Like, I saw Vice posting stuff about like what kind of popsicle flavor are you? And I was like, what happened? These used yeah. to be the guys that would it go was live cutting edge. And they would go shit. live he would live with a drug lord in Africa and yeah, they'd write yeah. these, you know, these stories about these people's lives that were just fucking incredibly intense and incredibly yeah. risky for them to put themselves in those situations. And yeah, back in the day, you know, th- that was my goal. So, uh, you know, almost famous. I-, I loved that story because I thought that was like the dream. That was like the coolest writing gig you could have was touring with the band. Hell yeah. So your, your mom sounds like an interesting character. Because on the one side, my mom's you, awesome. My mom's you're telling a me, saint. yeah, you, you, she's Mormon, right? She is. My my mom's very Mormon. She's never even had caffeine her entire life. She is as straight laced. And she, she loves Mark Twain, who is like Mark. the most subversive motherfucker around. She loves him what because he's up? so fucking intelligent. And I think she just loves that he 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 wrote stuff that mattered. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, my how does, my, but doesn't that clash with her Mormonism and the sort of like approach to life that Mormonism teaches? I don't believe so. My mom's probably the most open minded Mormon you'll ever meet. I don't think people would even <laughs> I don't think people would even if you met my parents, you'd have a hard time even believing they were Mormon. Hmm. Um, my dad, you know, converted later in life. I learned about all my little, you know, roach clip doobie culture from my dad. He grew up in Seattle in the 70s. And so. When I was in high school getting in trouble, my dad was always kind of the one that had my back and was like, oh, this is just what happens. You know, he's exploring, you know, getting out there and having fun. Um, so my dad was always open minded in that front. And then my mom was always very open minded. If it concerned anything about learning, whether it's like learning something that challenged your current idea, learning something that, you know, is, is against a popular narrative. My mom was always just about learning. She went back to school. I think she was. My mom would have been like her early 50s. She actually went back to college to pursue another degree just because she wanted to learn. Um, so I, I, I think I think it's that thirst for knowledge that made my mom such a, a fan of Mark Twain, despite, you know, her rather conservative uh, ideals with Mormonism. Right. Um, so your approach to history is is also kind of uh, uh, subversive and cantankerous, and you, you don't take the, the you know the party line on stuff. Um, are you a fan of Howard Zinn? Have you read the People's History of the USA? I have not. I've had that book come up many times as a recommendation, but I have not read that. Yeah, yeah. I think for a lot of people, that's the book that sort of first. Um, introduces the idea that there are other interpretations of these events that we've all heard about, you know, like, oh, let's look at it. Instead of looking at it from the point of view of the white male victors, let's, you know, look at the experience of the women and the black people and the Indians and all that. Um, I saw you posted something. I was looking at your Instagram account. You posted, um, I forget the guy's name, but he, uh, he took over a ship and yeah, Robert it Smalls. Out. Robert Smalls yeah. escaped the uh, co- the Confederate um, total army. badass. Yeah, badass. I mean, and that goes back to what I said earlier. The history I chose for this book is history that I found interesting. So for the most part, it was stuff that I didn't know, and it was because, like you said, I'd been told one narrative my whole life, and so I started finding these other stories, and I was like, shit, why is no one talking about this? This is so much cooler than what we were taught. I mean, an example of that is. Sybil Luddington was a 16-year-old girl who rode twice as far as Mark Twain 
I mean, not Mark Twain, twice as far as uh, Paul Revere. I have Mark Twain on my brain right now. She rode twice as far as Paul Revere the same night to warn of that impending invasion. But no one really talked about it until I think it was like 1866 or something like the story finally came out way down the, you know, further down the line. Mm. Um, but that's a cooler story to tell. She's 16. And I don't know if you've rode a horse, but riding, she, I think she rode like 26 miles and Paul Revere rode about 13 and a half. But riding 26 miles on a horse is fucking difficult. Yeah, That's hard. And so that to me, that story is more important to tell than the other one, because not only is I think it, it's a cooler accomplishment, but it's a young girl who did something incredibly badass. And if you can't find that motivating to deal with some of the smaller, you know, circumstances in your own daily life, um, I, I don't know what's going to motivate you. What, what are your sources? How do you how do you find these anecdotes that catch your fancy? A uh, ton of research on my own. And then I had a former colleague of mine at one of my ad agencies who was a writer in the early days of MSN back when it was like the primary search engine. And so I hired him and together we're like, dude, we're just going to dig up all sorts of cool stories. We're going to go through these different databases and researchers and get access to papers, you know, submitted for, you know, people's doctorates. And we're going to research the hell out of these. And we're going to find stories that need to be told that aren't being told enough. And so it was him and I kind of had a joint effort on it back in 2016 is when I was working with him on the book. Um, and we just right. dug up tons of stuff that we thought was worth talking about. And then I found a way to spin it and be like, okay, this is cool. How does this apply to life now? How is this similar to what someone might be experiencing today in the dating world? Or how does this feel like getting fired from your job? Like stuff that's really heartbreaking or really hard or people need motivation to get through. How can I take a story that's rather obscure and make it relate to that? Right. So who's the who's your your main audience? Is it young people looking for guidance and, and sort of historical references to get them through their own lives? Or I would who think do you... my main audience is people strictly looking for entertainment. Um, oh, okay. I think it's probably like, you know, late 20, early 30s, people looking to be entertained. And at the same time, you learn something. It's like that trick where it's like, oh, this is so funny and fun, to, but I'm actually learning at the same time. It's right. kind of how it took off. I don't think people like actively sought me out as a historical expert or actively sought me out as someone to teach them life lessons. I was strictly trying to be entertaining. Um, and if I could throw some education at the same time. And a lot of my tweets are similar where I try and make them entertaining, but I do have an underlying you know, notion or idea about life in them. I just tell them in a way that you know people might not realize. Do you listen to Dan Carlin and other history podcasts? I don't. I actually, I have, I have, I have been so anti-podcast. I've only listened to like clips that I'm telling <laughs> don't you. Even I don't listen. I, I, I listen to clips that are sent to me. Um, yeah. It just feels odd to me to eavesdrop on conversations for some reason. <laughs> um, it's something I probably need to get over, but I do a lot of audiobooks, especially when I'm working out in the mornings. If I do cardio, I always have audiobooks in because I feel like it's just an easy way to get lost in, you know, that, that way, 30 minutes on the treadmill doesn't sound so hellish when you get lost in a story. So I've done yeah. audiobooks for a long time, but podcasts never really appealed to me until recently I started listening to more and more. And then, like I said, listening to yours this morning, you know, not trying to suck up or anything. I feel like, damn, I missed the boat. Like I could have had a really cool thing going if I jumped on five years ago. Jump on now. Jump on whenever. I just think just... there's too many out there. <laughs> well, 
I, I mean, I don't know. How, how the hell do you get half a million followers on social media? You know, how did that happen? I don't know. I just, like I told you, I was just opinionated. Well, <laughs> I was opinionated dude, and it started growing and it just, it really, it was, it just took off. If you, I mean, you've got that kind of audience already. If you wanted to do a podcast, you've got a built-in audience, you know, most of those people are listening to podcasts. So, yeah. you know, I don't want to hear that. Sorry. Oh, it's too late. <laughs> Fuck that, dude. You got a huge audience. So um, I, but, uh, I did something. I don't know if you saw it. I had something called Dear Captain, which was like a Dear Abby newsletter that I ran for about three and a half years. And it was, it was, it was my kind of similar thing to do with the podcast. It was like, okay, I want to talk more in detail and I want to talk deeper on subjects that more than I can do on social media. So I started this weekly newsletter. It was a column I'd release every Friday and I had people write in, you know, their own questions for me to review and answer. And that was kind of what my, you know, my, uh, you know, in, in lieu of a podcast, that's what I did for many years. And I probably should have done a podcast instead because I felt that newsletter became very taxing for me. And it was something that, that, that it, it got too big. Um, I was getting too many questions. I couldn't really control it as much as a podcast where I could have you know one guess of my choosing on. I would get so many emails every week that I felt terrible that I didn't answer all of them because these were people genuinely trying to get advice from me or genuinely trying to reach out and have a connection. And I wasn't able to get, cause I'd get thousands of emails a week sometimes. And I was like, I can't keep up on this. So I actually closed that down last summer um, because emotionally it was something that started to really take a toll on me, especially dealing with the depression I was having at the time. And so I, I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll turn this into a podcast. And then I got busy with other shit and it never happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, also like not all podcasts are conversational. Like I have uh, a friend, Daniele Bolelli, who has a podcast, I think it's called History on Fire. And uh, Dan Carlin has one that's called a Hardcore History. It's one of the biggest podcasts in the world. I heard of that one. I, when I was doing my audio book last week in LA, the audio engineer was preaching nothing but good things about that podcast oh, yeah dan's great he's been on this this podcast um but what he does he and Danielli both they just pick a, a topic and research the shit out of it and then dan just tells the story and in fact you reminded me of of one of his episodes earlier when you said uh you know that people celebrate uh these events where thousands of people died as long as they're like discreetly distant from us you uh -huh. know um he he opens this podcast about the mongols uh it's called like the eastern storm or something like that and he opens it and he says basically that um you know if you want to write a best selling book what you should do is look at the nazis and write a book about all the great things that they accomplished because that's essentially what these books these revisionist histories of the mongols are like genghis khan okay well he killed some people but you know he created international trade the silk route and the you know like amazing uh, uh war strategy and you know came up with all this stuff and what Dan Carlo is saying is basically like, look, if someone's distant enough that you don't know anyone who knows anyone who was killed by these people, then you can say positive things about them, right? But if there's still people alive who have any kind of memory or personal connection to the atrocities that they committed, then you can't possibly talk about any of the upside. 
But, you know, he went through and it's like the Mongols were motherfuckers. I Genghis mean, they... Khan was a fucking terrible dude. Isn't it? There isn't like a statistic that a certain amount of all people in Southeast Asia are from his lineage because he raped so many yeah. women. There's the a, there's DNA, some, yeah. There's, yeah, there's some statistic about yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's like horrible. 20% or something of all Asians or some yeah, shit. The dude was a fucking yeah. piece of shit. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I got into this recently talking about Christopher Columbus um, because I, I I just wrote this book called Civilized to Death, where I sort of critique civilization and the yeah, notion I bought of that progress. Running on audiobook, by the way. <laughs> oh, you're gonna get sick of listening to me because I read it. So I already am halfway through this talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're all assholes. Christopher Columbus was a piece of shit. Uh, yeah. Cortez, there's horrible. Pizarro, all these guys, they were just murderous bastards. Um, and, and Dan and I sort of talked about this a little bit <coughs> and his perspective was like, yeah, but everybody was then, right? The, the Spaniards were, you know, Spain was a brutal place, which I agree with, but I think the most brutal were the ones who got chosen to go on these ships. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the guys who had nothing to lose. They were chosen for a specific purpose, and that was because they, they were very ruthless men. And, I mean, I don't know if you heard the story, but when Columbus would, would land, he would often burn the ships behind the men. After they got onto the beach, he'd burn the ship because then they had no choice. He's like, okay, well, you can't go home now, so you better go kill everyone on this fucking island because right. that's your only choice to live. Yeah, um, yeah, you know stuff like that. He, he was he very much had an intent just to go eradicate. So okay, you've you've spent a lot of time looking at history and different cultures, and and you know have a pretty sophisticated sense of of the past. If you could be born as an average person in any time or place. What would be your? This is the kind of thing you talk about when as you're stoned. An, as right? an average person, that's the average that person, right? So you're not like the fucking king of, you know. <laughs> um, you're an average person. Where would you like to be and when? Yeah, the average person is what throws it off because that can go so many different ways. But I, I do think that living during the height of Rome would have been incredibly interesting, if not just entertaining. I mean, you talk about civilizations that were brutal um, at the time. You know, Rome was was definitely not shy of that. And I think I, I like the fact that the Romans were also very much into how we connect to the earth or how we connect to, you know, the gods or there's a the fact that they would afford people, you know, to have the job other than nothing other than just sitting there and thinking. Like your yeah. job for the Roman civilization was just to think right. and people would fund your life so you could just sit and think about the world. A civilization to me that had that kind of thirst for learning, I think would be interesting to have been a part of. But again, being an average person, it could go so many different ways. Yeah, um, probably be you, a you, slave. Yeah, you very quickly could have become a slave You you or you could have somehow, you know, made somewhat of a name for yourself. Likely you never would have gone anywhere huge because you weren't of loyal lineage. But I, I would like to live in a civilization like that. And then again, I think ancient Egyptians, similar thing. It can go so many different ways. But that was a society that I think had such a profound desire to learn and understand. And again, it was, it was awfully brutal though. The Egyptian torture techniques are a completely different podcast you could talk about. Um, but I, I would like to live in a society, I think, when... 
again, when, when just thinking was something that was so celebrated, because right now I think there's just a lack of that. I think there's obviously a chunk of people who do appreciate that, but for the most part, we're very much more focused on entertainment than we are actually trying to understand things. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a well-established thread of anti-intellectualism in American culture and they've never, Americans well, don't want to learn. There's a resistance to yeah. learning. That's hard for me to understand. And I wrote about this not too long ago on my Twitter. I just, I don't understand how some people get to a point in their life and they're just like, fuck it. I know enough. I just yeah. don't want to learn anymore. <laughs> like who, who the fuck just wakes up one day and decides I don't need to learn anything else. Like, yeah, it doesn't have to be like some scholarly shit. Like, don't you just want to learn how to mow your lawn better or learn yeah. how to prune a fucking plant? Like just simple things. Why would you not want to learn to be to better at anything? And there's I think there's a huge lack of that right now for some reason. It blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I think uh, a lot of it is that people are just overwhelmed with the necessities of life. You know, I think people you, are tired. I think there's a lot of tired. burnout, especially with yeah. media. I think, yeah. you know, like we talked about, social media and podcasts can, can dramatically change your life if you're someone who's not as fortunate as us to be in a position where it's something that helps you. It can very quickly become something that does nothing but drain your energy. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially and people are working meaningless fucking jobs mm -hmm. and you know, they don't sleep enough and their kids are screaming and, the, you know, it's it's rigged. The system's rigged against them for sure. Yeah, burnout is a real thing at every level for sure, but it, it, especially if you're already exacerbated by your daily life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think curiosity is certainly a, a fundamental condition of human beings. Mm -hmm. um, but if you keep them tired enough, they'll, they don't have enough energy to even fucking ask new questions, you know? When you talk about how, how many times has that been done throughout history, where the whole goal is just to tire a populace out so you can do whatever the hell you want to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah that happens crazy. often. You can look back on several instances of that. Yeah. You know, I was thinking we were talking about Rome. I was thinking that, you know, uh, someone like you who is, you know, your your goal is to show the color of history and how fun and interesting and surprising it is and all that sort of reminds me of a few years ago. I, I was reading some article that explained that, you know, all these Roman buildings that we think of and the white columns and the white marble and, you know, Washington, D.C., all the architecture is modeled after mm -hmm. Rome, ancient Rome and ancient Greece. Uh, those buildings were actually colored. They were bright reds and purples and greens, and they were painted all these wild colors. And it's all either faded or chipped away over the years. So we're left with this white image uh, of classical Rome when it was actually really colorful even the statues the eyes were painted that's awesome. you know the, the statues themselves were painted so like david you know this white marble statue it wasn't white when it was in its day you know so it's and interesting would, you going back and adding the color back in mm -hmm. you know it's and that would make perfect sense i saw something not too long ago where they unearthed um a roman mosaic below some farmer's field and the mosaic they found again it's just beautiful um, and you look at Roman attire, Roman jewelry, all of it was very colorful. I'd actually never yeah. heard uh, about, about the, the buildings being colorful, too, but that makes perfect sense. And yeah. it actually, it, it makes you more so want to go back and see that. And they also took all the, the sex out of it. You know, there's in uh, Pompeii, there is a, a room or a, a special part of the museum that was um, off limits to regular guests. But if you had some sort of special invitation or whatever, you could go into these rooms. And that's where they had all these um, paintings and all this stuff that was 
removed from the the you know displays for normal people but people had like in Pompeii they had in their kitchens over the dinner table like a scene of an orgy right this was just like that, normal fantastic art why would you hide that <laughs> exactly well the children you know children can't know they're that gonna, they're had... gonna grow up to do it someday um jesus that reminds me i there was a hotel i was working on in new york that was an old ian schrager property it's called um the paramount hotel and below it they had a place called the diamond horseshoe which was this little clandestine venue and I took a tour through there with one of the asset managers at the time. And he was showing me these little rooms they had in the back that were just like a room with a bathtub. And it's like, okay, well, these, these rooms were off limits for the majority of people. But you know these rooms were used for something. They weren't just down here for no reason. It's just a room with a bathtub. Yeah. I mean, come on. And it wasn't to get clean either. No, it was it was to do something <laughs> dirty and then feel clean afterwards, hopefully. But um, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, you know, talking about, you know, sex through history. I know you wrote a book on this, too. But you look at like Catherine the Great. If you Google like her furniture, this woman had custom ornate furniture of these beautiful tables where they were just giant dicks as the legs. Or she had just these big chairs that were just phallic symbols everywhere, like. People yeah. back then were obsessed with sex just as much as they are now, but they did it in a more tasteful, artistic way because I think they 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 they, they appreciated art a little bit more. But yeah, they just just like you said, they they've stripped a lot of the truth out of history. They've stripped the sex out of a lot of ancient cultures because it's not appropriate to teach in school. I mean, I'm sure you know, like you've seen all the little Roman coins they had that had a little sex act on it, and you'd pass it off and. You know, there's a couple of stories in my book about that, how, you know, prostitutes would wear sandals that had an inscription on the bottom. So when they'd step in sand, it would say, follow me. And yeah. they would w walk really perfectly to a brothel. So if you're walking and you're some drunk dude in a toga, you see these little steps and you know how to get to the brothel. I mean, the stuff like yeah. that happened all the time, but it's just been erased yeah. or not talked about. And so my book does have, a, you know, a lot of like the conqueror, strong female lead type stuff that for some reason, you know, people just didn't want to talk about. But it also has a lot of the funny, just silly, quirky kind of obscure stuff like the sandals that, you know, tell, you know, a, a drunk guy to follow the prostitute, the brothel kind of thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a friend who's a, um, written a bunch of books uh, at the sort of <clears throat> overlap of history and sexuality. So he has a book about Napoleon's penis, for example, where he traced its movements and found it. The actual penis is in a garage Did it, didn't it get in cut New off? Jersey. It got cut off. Yeah. Right or something. Yeah. yeah. When by in the autopsy. Yeah. The doctor cut his dick off and kept it like as a souvenir. And then it, you know, got passed on and sold and auctioned off here and there, whatever. Now it's sitting in a garage in New Jersey. But my buddy, Tony I mean, imagine Parrot that conversation piece, though. I would have that on. I would have that at my home bar sitting right next to a bottle of bourbon. I'd have Napoleon's dick in that jar. Like, like and, in formaldehyde or, or something. Or, or you know, you <laughs> All right. Some about Napoleon's dick just just knocked the shit out of our connection here. It's too much. So what I was saying though is you've seen like those bars in like Alaska where they take a shot out of a, a, a jar that has like a guy's, you know, frostbitten toe in it or something, right? Right. And they pour you a shot of it. I would do that with Napoleon's dick. Yeah. Yeah. I would take a really high end alcohol and I'd pour it in the dick jar and I'd have my friends take shots out of it. Dictila or something like that. There you go. That's the next, yeah. that's the next billion dollar company. Someone called uh, someone called the Rock. I heard he just launched a company for Tequila. <laughs> Put Rock's dick in it. 
Right. Well, did, did they do the similar thing to Rasputin's dick? Apparently, it's in a jar somewhere in Philadelphia. There's actually there's it's it's skeptic as to whether or not it is truly his dick, but yeah. he was known as someone who had a very large penis during his time, and it's talked about, um, you know, in history is the fact that Rasputin had a huge dick, and the one in the jar in Philadelphia, I believe it's in like the Mutter Museum or something, there is enormous. Hmm. So the, you mentioned Catholic, uh, Catholic, right? Catherine the Great. Um, and, and you're talking about Rasputin's dick. Now, th- I know there are all these rumors about Catherine the Great dying when a horse she was fucking, you know, fell on her or something. Um, but then I read that's not true. That was just used to, uh, discredit, used to discredit her. her. Yeah. It was yeah. used to like discredit her and be like, oh, well, she wasn't a powerful ruler. She was a freak and she died having sex with a horse. It's the similar thing that's gone on throughout history where, I mean, that's unfortunately, what happened back then if you didn't have a way of truly documenting your reign or documenting right. your significance to the world when you die people could say whatever they want about you they could change it however they want in a book and but she did have fine. like phallic table legs. she was incredibly sex happy and she yeah. actually would have her maidens test guys out for her to make sure they were enough for her appetite Right. She had she had her little harem of, you know, maids and servants and she would have them have sex with the dude first. And if they pass that test, she's like, Okay, you're enough man for me. Now I'll come to the royal chamber kind of thing. Right. Right. It's good work if you can get it. I don't know. It's it reminds me of Gaddafi had all the female bodyguards. Oh, uh, there's so many there's so many instances throughout history of people having harems. That's just something that comes with power. I think with power comes you know, comes you know. Uh, used to now well, it, now it, well, it comes it comes with the feeling of being untouchable and you know having yeah. an appetite that can't be quenched and they just take advantage of it i'm almost every ruler throughout history especially male has had a large harem at one point not bill fucking clinton he got run out on a rail for a well, blowjob that, that, that has yet to be proven <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know there's a, lo- epstein there's, a lot, stuff. there's a lot going on with that epstein shit yeah yeah i don't i think it's tip of the iceberg for what's you know as much as i hate that saying tip of the iceberg i think it's yeah. it's the tip of clinton's dick as to what actually go went that chef really went into we're gonna when, find uh, out trump's too apparently I mean, do you think, uh, what's her name, Gisine or Giselle Maxwell? Like, is she going to kill herself in her jail cell, too? What the fuck's going on? My buddy wrote me yesterday, and he's like, hey, you want to do a parlay bet as to when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen? And it's it'll be interesting to see, but I would not be surprised in the least if we see that person silenced in the next couple days. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember, there was a a thing, uh, this was in the Bush junior administration around that time so that would have been what 2000 to 2004 um 2008 somewhere in the early 2000s there was the the dc madam she was called and she was running a prostitution ring super high end i remember hearing the story remember that and she said she got busted and she's like well i've got a little black book with a lot of big names in it and so and she refused to plead out and so she was awaiting trial at her mother's place in Florida in living in the guest house in the back. And apparently she hanged herself one night and the little black book has never been found. Apparently Dick Cheney was in there and Rumsfeld and all these guys. That's not surprising to say the least. Um, Yeah. You hear too many stories and I've, I've worked with politicians on certain political campaigns and advertising and 
there's a lot of snaky shit that happens and I'm glad to not be working on that stuff anymore. Yeah, so the fact that those guys would have mistresses and you hear about like the stag houses in DC where the, you know, five senators will rent a house together and all that kind of stuff. It's that's yeah. just happening. It's just yeah. whether or not it's going to come out. Yeah. That's what vice should be doing. That's the good yeah. stuff. Vice should be doing these days. No you know, shit. 10 years Instead, ago, vice would have been on top of that shit. Instead, we get Al Franken getting kicked out because he took a selfie with some bitch. I mean, I, I, it's, I, don't, I don't understand. Um, listen, before I start getting all bitter and angry, uh, let me thank you for doing this. And I hope your first podcast experience was uh, you know, gentle enough that you'll do it again sometime. I was expecting it to be a bit rougher, but no, it was a good. Uh, it was it was a good uh, a good way to take my uh, my voice box virginity. I, I guess I could say. <laughs> Popped your cherry today. Um, yeah. Well, good luck with the books. Tell people again what it's called. It's fucking, fucking history. Fucking history. Gonna, yeah, it's going to be out August 11th. It's up for pre order now. And I mean, the only reason I named it that title was hoping that it would give people a sense of what they were buying into. It's definitely not, you know, a book you're going to want to read as a bedtime story for your, your kids, unless you're going to pause every other word. And it's um, not the history of fucking. I wrote that book. Yeah. That's your book. We should, yeah. we should do a joint book together. <laughs> exactly. We'll go on tour together. Right. The history of fucking and fucking history. Um, all right, cool. So do you want me to release this, uh, on the 11th with the launch or do you want to release it before then? You can release it. You can release it whenever you want. Pre-orders would be nice. I know that stuff helps for the first week listings. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still fairly unfamiliar with how the real publication process works, but apparently numbers matter. So (laughs) (laughs) pre-orders are always helpful from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely, they definitely help to get the ball rolling. Is it coming out straight into paperback or are you going to do the hardback then the paperback? Straight into paperback. So hopefully, you know, the Good. paperback justifies the hardback version. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, good luck with the book and thank you for doing this. I encourage everyone to uh, place that pre-order on your favorite book procurement site. I saw you you uh, were careful not to limit it to Amazon. You got the Barnes and Noble and uh indie booksellers and whatever. Yeah, it's going to be everywhere. My first couple of books were Amazon only because I was using their self-publishing platform, so it's nice to have this book more readily available and I do plan to go around and find it in stores and sign it and leave it on the shelves and see how many times I can get away with that. Yeah, I do that. It, it's it's really interesting. You walk into a bookstore and say, hey, do you have any copies of Sex at Dawn? Like, yeah. And I was like, well, I'm the author. I'm happy to sign them. Oh, great. And they go get them and all that. No one's ever asked me for ID. I've probably done it a hundred times. I'm going to go and just say, like, I'm Herman Melville. Do you happen to have any copies of Moby Dick? Yeah. it's <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. That's right. I mean, I don't think they would ask for ID because they're afraid to insult you at that point. Right. Especially if you're a book re- if you're a book retailer, you want to act like you know the authors. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know you. I follow you on Instagram. Sure. They have no idea oh, yeah. who the fuck you are. Yeah. Uh, it's some yeah. 17-year-old kid that's just working that job through high school. Exactly. Exactly. We get no respect. All right. Kyle, Captain, thank you for doing this. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate your time, man. All right. Thank you very much. Enjoy your time in Oregon. Thanks. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Good guy, Kyle. Like him. Happy for his success. Pick up a copy of fucking History. Pick up a copy of fucking Civilized to Death. Pick up a copy of fucking Sex at Dawn. Pick up copies of whatever. Just read a book. It's a good way to sort of forget what's happening right now or to understand it better, depending on your approach to things. 
thank you for your attention and uh i will leave you as i always do with my mom by the way if you missed the last episode it's with my sister episode before that was with my mom so you get to meet the family a little bit get to hear about how everybody thought i was gay when i was in college strange except the ladies yeah all right that's enough of that chris uh here's my mom okay mom uh tell people what they can order from the garage okay in our cottage garage we have lots and lots of t-shirts sex at dawn civilized to death vanthropology tangentially speaking paleo modern and talking out of my ass <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one then we now have some new things added we've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called oh civilized to death design. they're all civilized that's right to death. we have stickers and car decals right yes okay there you have it that's julie my mom he said baby what's a big deal feel what you want to feel say what you want to say you're gonna die one day for example i could kiss you just because i want to what's the difference if you turn away i'm gonna die one day why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation trying to meet an expectation wondering what they're gonna say when everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone i don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one day your body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation running from a confrontation wondering what we ought to say <laughs> when everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone i don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one day we're gonna die one day we're gonna die one day so baby what's a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground